and welcome to the History of Vikings. The two most important sources of Norse mythology that survive today are arguably the Poetic Edda and the Prose Edda. By sources, I mean the places where we get the concept of Norse gods and goddesses from. While their titles are similar, these two sources are different from one another, and today we'll be exploring the Prose Edda. Written in the 13th century by Icelandic chieftain and scholar Snorri Sturluson, the Prose Edda has long shaped our understanding of Norse gods and goddesses. But is this understanding true? Does it need to be re-examined? Joining me today is Dr. Gisli Sigurdsson, a returning guest and research professor and head of the folklore department at the Arne Magnusson Institute in Iceland. Dr. Sigurdsson, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome uh, to, to yourself. Uh, thank you for having me. So that's a great pleasure to be back here. So. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, I, I'm so excited to dive into our conversation today, Dr. Sigurdsson. But, you know, for listeners who aren't wholly familiar with Snorri's Edda or the Prose Edda, could you just sort of introduce it to us? You know, what is this work? Yes, Snorri Sturluson is one of the few authors that we know of from the medieval period that we feel reasonably confident was uh, uh, behind uh, several works, uh, among them uh, Heimskringla, Royal Historiographical uh, Compilation about the kings of Norway from the, the mythological beginnings, more or less down to um, uh, close to Snorri's time. And uh, then we associate a saga uh, called Eil Saga Skallagrimssonar about one of his forefathers, uh, the set settlement family in his uh, region where he um, lived himself as, a, as an adult. Uh, probably the first saga of this kind. And uh, so Snorri would have been uh, the initiator of the genre that we call the sagas of Icelanders or the family sagas, if that is correct. And uh, he wrote a separate saga of uh, King Olaver Helgi Haraldsson, and then uh, this book called Edda. We don't really know what Edda means, could be a, a, a reference to what we know from um, just uh, English as edition. So, and uh, the meaning of the word in the Icelandic is uh, a foremother. Of a sort, but um, it's hard to make sense of that in um, in this context. Mm. And um, uh, the prose edda is then, as you as you said in your introduction, different from the poetic edda, which just contains uh, poems about the uh, gods in the first half, and then about the um, pan-Germanic uh, hero Siegfried or Sigurd, the dragon slayer that we also know from the German Nibelungenlied and from Wagner's operas. And the whole cycle associated with him, or perhaps rather his uh, wife, Guðrún, in the Icelandic version of the story, but Krimhild in the um, German. Uh, the uh, Edda, the prose Edda, uh, treats uh, similar material, but as the name indicates, in prose. And uh, the reason why Snorri is um, writing this is that he wants it to be a textbook for young aspiring poets, not just any poets, but uh, professional court poets that could um, earn a living from their art at the uh, courts and wherever uh, the Norse language was spoken. 
And this had been the professional art of Icelandic poets ever since the 10th century. And it required uh, 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 great skills in not only uh, uh, complicated metrics of uh, skaldic poetry, which uh, differs from the uh, rest of what we know in uh, Germanic uh, poetry in uh, Germany and Old English, but it's much more similar to the uh, Old Irish complicated uh, compositions that were also uh, made by the professional poets of this high social esteem that we associate with the uh, Icelandic court poets. And um, not only was it the metric, but also the vocabulary. So the part or uh, one of the founding stones of the art of this court poetry was to make it complicated. And the more complicated, the better. So it's a very elitist uh, art form that you need um, professional training to master as, as a composer, but also in order to understand and appreciate the art in, as an audience. So Snorri, as a young boy, is trained in this uh, art. He learns it uh, orally. That is the only way uh, this could be achieved in, in his youth. And he's also being trained as an upcoming lawman and a chieftain in secular as a secular uh, activist and uh, so law, became a law speaker as well. And possibly he was then, um, because he grew up uh, on a farm where uh, also priests in, in the south of Iceland at Otti, where his foster father ran um, an educational center for uh, within the, the church. So all the other young boys who were growing up there and learning whatever they were learning for um, their priesthood and um, clerical activities would have been in Latin. So he would be familiar with that uh, approach to learning as he sat uh, with uh, some other tutors familiarizing himself with all this poetry and the um, stories about the Norwegian kings, uh, one of whom was um, uh, Magnus Barefoot was actually uh, in Jón Loftsson's uh, family. And Jón Loftsson had grown up uh, in, um, in where is now uh, Göteborg or Gothenburg. And um, so he very much identified with his uh, royal uh, Norwegian uh, part of the family and would have been proud of that and, uh, and uh, was um, training Jón Snorri in the same appreciation clearly from what we see in Snorri's career later on. But somewhere then along the line, Snorri gets this brilliant idea that um, why not use the same technique as the young priestlings were using when he was growing up and, and present everything I had to learn orally in, a, in book form with a beginning, middle and end, which is a very different approach from the oral training that we, uh, we uh, of course, just have to... Um, uh, uh, speculate about how how could how could that have been practiced, but Snorri gives us a few clues in his work because he sets it up as a, as a conversation between the ignorant king uh, Gilvi who goes out into the world and meets um, three uh, divine uh, creatures that start explaining the world to him when they realize how stupid and uh, ignorant he is. And uh, before Snorri sets out with this uh, real 
explanatory material, he writes a foreword explaining that, of course, the um, mythological content that is about to uh, come uh, should not be believed in. It's like these warning texts that we get now for movies and news uh, items, so be prepared for uh, something that uh, for sensitive uh, individuals should not uh, watch what's beyond this point. So he as well says, well, there will be talk of gods here, but of course they are not gods. That was a misunderstanding of our forefathers and mothers to regard them as such. But then he forgets about these warnings and just dives into it. And um, uh, and uh, the reason he is telling this, um, this mythological version of the cosmology and then all these... Uh, the different mythological narratives is that the uh, language, the um, the imagery in the the skaldic poetry is all based on references to this mythology. So, in order to understand the uh, the metaphors and the uh, images and the constructions of this uh, exceptionally complicated poetic diction, you have to know the mythological background. So, it's not it's not informing us about paganism, but he is giving us the tools for composing uh, courtly poetry. So it has nothing to do with pagan uh, uh, religious uh, rites or rituals or anything of that sort. So, as you said, the problem is then, what kind of a source is this? Is it a source about pre-Christian religion in the north? Or is it an authentic source, perhaps, which is a more accurate question? about the um, current traditional thinking about uh, Norse myths in Snorri's time. So, and I think the, uh, that is the central problem because uh, it has been accepted as a, a general truth, more or less in the, um, in, uh, in the scholarship of, uh, of Old Norse, that uh, Snorri was an antiquarian, much like uh, us, much like our modern scholars working with fragmentary sources and trying to reconstruct something that would be um, uh, pre -presenta presentable as a um, mythological uh, so narrative with a pantheon and, and so on. And um, <clears throat> we really have no evidence or source for that 13th century source that this is actually how Snorri was working. So this is a much later idea about his methods. So if we turn the question around and say, well, if Snorri is our informant, as he would if we were field workers going into the field into a, a different culture and we would start, ask, start asking questions, we would um, get some information, we would get some poems, we would get some stories from our informants. And we would not get the same poems and not, not the same stories from every individual we would interview. But um, we would never claim that our informants were wrong or that they were making mistakes or uh, and that there was some, something right just behind the informants or just before the, our informants came on the scene. So we would always believe our sources, so to speak. And I think um, perhaps we should... Uh, 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 approach Snorri's prosata in the same manner. This is one individual's uh, presentation of um, his tradition and very authentic as such. And it's um, 
uh, question that comes uh, much later down the road, if this is a source also about um, whatever people were doing in um, religious in terms of religious ideas and practices in the 10th century. So once we establish this, this that Snorri is not making things up, and we have uh, uh, several uh, proofs really that he is uh, clearly working with old material that was um, widely known in um, the Norse uh, cultural area, we also must uh, think that idea into some uh, model of an oral memory culture where um, everyone has their own version of the tradition to tell and to mediate. No one, uh, had we interviewed more uh, people in Iceland in the 1220s or 30s about uh, stories of the old Norse gods, that we would be getting many different versions of these stories. No one would be telling us the same story. That is just the nature of um, of the material. But still, because this is an elitist uh, culture, it, it is um, held up by a few individuals who dive into it as a profession and they learn it and they study it carefully. Uh, because if you can compose this Caldic poetry, you can expect to be rewarded financially. So it's not... Um, there's uh, any folk art to, um, that is practiced by all. And, um, and uh, in, in that sense, um, uh, we, we must uh, acknowledge that, um, that uh, Snorri is uh, mediating the version of the myths that, uh, that he knew. And um, how did he then know, know these stories? He was clearly not a pagan. He was a good Christian, and he was clearly not practicing myth, uh, pagan rituals and sacrifices and and so on. Of course, we know that much of uh, ideas and practices and behavior survives a religious religious change, but um, not uh, he was not practicing it as uh, religion as such. But um, in the uh, first main chapter of his uh, Edda. He really explains how the memory system works. How, how does he remember it? How does he present this material to his students? And this has more escaped most of our contemporary scholars. So the, uh, the memory technique, or the memory method that he uses, he refers everything to the sky. The mythological dwellings, they are in the sky and we are I think uh, the reason this has escaped us is that we are so um, uh, just used to the Christian metaphor that God is in heaven and blah, blah, blah. And of course, we don't take that literally. This is, uh, there is some metaphorical thinking behind that. But um, the gods of the Indo-European peoples, they have been and they were located in the sky. So, and this is a universal idea that uh, all cultures have a mythological language about the sky above them. And by the sky above, I mean, so the uh, firmament, of course, the stars proper, and then the planets, uh, including the sun and the moon and the five visible planets. So we also start um, thinking about more planets because we know that there is a Uranus and Neptunus and Pluto and so on, but they, of course, did not exist in the medieval period because they are not visible to the naked eye. And... Uh, 
when we uh, sort of start looking up and uh, reading Snorri's Prosata with this literal understanding that the world tree is a white uh, tree trunk uh, dominating above in the sky, literally, that is what Snorri says. And it's uh, it's uh, whitish and transparent, just like the um, membrane inside the uh, the egg, shell of an egg. And um, if if we were in Snorri's hot tub in Reykholt and looking up in the sky under this lecture, of course there is just one phenomena in the sky that can match this description, and that is the Milky Way. And once he has established the world tree, he starts telling his uh, students about, or rather he has these divine creatures in the text telling the ignorant earthly King Gilvi of Sweden uh, that um, there are all kinds of animals and uh, uh, placed around the uh, Milky Way. And then there is this um, terminology that is quite consistent that there are locations in the sky either called salir or stadir, so halls or places. And we know from uh, one of the mythological poems, Völuspá, that um, these terms are used in the um, create, creation process, that um, the sun owns um, what is called salir in heaven or in the sky, and the, um, the stars own stadir or places. And when we start thinking about um, this mythological terminology, as we would in um, think about ethnic astronomy, then all uh, astronomies, again, around the world, they differentiate between the area in the sky where the sun and the moon and all the planets uh, are moving. And then the uh, rest of the sky, from our perspective here in, um, in the northern hemisphere, above the this uh, this uh, area and up and uh, below. And we, in modern terms, we know of, of this belt in the sky as the signs of the zodiac, that the sun moves through and we are born in different signs because the sun was 2,000 years ago in the respective signs and now it has moved roughly one sign. And... Uh, uh, we are familiar with that from the um, from the musical hair. So we are now at the dawn of the age of Aquarius, and uh, that means that um, we we are not just coming out of the um, age of the fish or pescas. So because uh, the sun at the spring equinox two thousand years ago was moving into the uh, fish sign. And now it is uh, the equinox is moving into the uh, sign of uh, Aquarius. And that is what is uh, meant by this uh, phrase in, in the musical. So, so it's a 2000 year age that the people 2000 years ago were um, familiar with as a unit. And of course you need to observe the sky very carefully for a long time to realize this change, this movement of the sun. But this is what the earlier cultures were well capable of. But we as modern people have somehow lost track of because we have started um, thinking about uh, us here on Earth as um, a part of a solar system moving around the sun. But in order to understand this um, mythological cosmology, we have to think back into the notion that we are on um, 
not quite a flat earth because people knew that it wasn't flat, but the sky is certainly a dome above us and the sun comes up. So literally it comes up. We now know for a fact that that is a mistake. We should, should stop talking about the sun rising. It's really the earth's moving and um, creating the illusion that the sun rises. But this for uh, Snorri in the 1200s is a, is a literal fact that the sun comes up. So without the knowledge of the rules of, uh, of physics, um, of course, you need some divine power. And that is also part of the worldview, not only of Christianity, but also of the earlier pre-Christian notions that there are divine forces at play in the world and you you believe that of course in different ways not everyone believes in the same gods or the, in um, in the same gods in the same way so everyone as now has their own version of the um, of, of the belief system uh, and um, but it's important to realize that once we start thinking about the worldview and the mythology along these lines it becomes quite natural that the stories survive the uh, religious change. Christianity, Christianity can take over, but uh, people still have the same terminology about the planets that move above them. And we know when the first astronomical texts are being translated, when this comes as um, proper uh, secular astronomy in the learned books of the church, then they translate the names of the uh, planets that bear the classical Roman gods' names still today. So we talk about Mars and Jupiter and, and um, Mercury and um, Venus and, uh, and Saturnus, of course. And uh, we don't believe in uh, any Roman, Roman mythology. We don't believe in these stars as being gods, but the... Uh, the uh, the mythological names have survived. And of course, the Norse had their names for the planets. Every culture has their name for the planets. And they translate these um, planets' names with the equivalent gods, as we have in the uh, days of the week. There is, of course, Sunday and Monday, Sun and Moon Day, and then Tisdagur um, or, or Tuesday. The uh, tear is uh, is uh, is uh, Mars, and Mercury is Odin, and uh, so Wednesday, which is Odin's day, Wednesday in, in English, and Thursday is um, is Thor, Thursday. So Jupiter and uh, Thor are uh, equivalent, and um, Friday and uh, Venus. Is uh, translated. Uh, Venus is translated with Freya, and then the text says that they don't know which uh, Norse god was um, uh, used for Saturn or Saturnus, which we have in Saturday in 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 English, and um, so we don't know who was behind behind that. Uh, some are suggesting that may have been Loki, perhaps, but. Uh, we don't have any direct uh, reference to that. So, so we we can establish that they were they had their own terminology for the um, for the uh, planets, 
and uh, that they had applied also to the weak system, whether that was taken over from Rome at some earlier age or not, or whether this is a shared Indo-European phenomenon, we we cannot really know for, for certain. But we also know in this um, astronomical uh, text that they they give us one one uh, key inform- information about which other uh, pre-Christian names the um, the uh, people of Iceland in the 13th century had, and that is a reference to what is called the Hyades in the Taurus sign. It is a very prominent sort of V-shaped uh, star pattern uh, that uh, sort of looks like. Um, or not, it looks like a you know, V, but uh, is said to be called the wolf's mouth uh, by the pagans, or used to be called the wolf wolf's mouth by the pagans. And um, <clears throat> if we take this now all the way, then we see that this sign is exactly on the path of the sun. So the sun goes through this path, through this sign uh, in uh, early June. And it goes from out out of the mouth. So we know this uh, myth that the, uh, the Ragnarök at the end of the world, the, uh, the uh, sun will be uh, swallowed by the wolf. So if this is literally what people are experiencing in the sky every year when, um, when the sun moves out of what they call the wolf's mouth, then whenever the uh, sun has escaped, there is time to celebrate and we have of course, uh, remains of um, pre-Christian celebrations in the north when in the midsummer festivities that have all kinds of peculiar rituals associated with it that may well uh, uh, be linked to this um, well time for celebration when once again the sun has escaped being swallowed by the um, by the wolf. Also, in nineteenth century terminology. Uh, in Iceland, just the language use uh, refers to what we see in the sky, re- uh, not regularly, but uh, uh, under certain light conditions, we see uh, man- soon, uh, sun dogs and moon dogs and the sun halo, a big circle around the sun with two uh, bright dots on both sides referred to as sun dogs. And similarly around the moon, there's a uh, uh, moon halo and uh, moon dogs, and this in 19th century terminology is referred to with mythological words. These are the wolves running before and after the sun that we hear of in Snorri Setta and doesn't really make any sense as a reference to a real visual phenomenon in the sky if we didn't have this much later language um, uh, use in in Iceland, and then uh, we can understand uh, an episode in in the um, Snorri's Prosetta again, when he describes the phenomenon about the moon that the moon is being carried around by two siblings on a pole that uh, they hold between them, and the um, the moon is in a bucket in the middle, and this then as and then the text says as can be seen from Earth. But of course, we don't see this from Earth unless there is this moon halo with the moon dogs on both sides. With the uh, and then when the, that is visible, there is also a line between the uh, two moon dogs that goes through the moon itself. So this is then um, 
as the uh, just language tradition informs us, a mythological terminology for real visible phenomena in the sky. So it would serve uh, as a very conclusive proof that uh, as in all other cultures, the, uh, the Norse expressed their uh, knowledge and understanding of the sky in mythological terms, just as all other cultures do from South America to North America to Australia and um, and the Pacific, of course, and uh, Asia and and elsewhere. So uh, this is this is by no means um, uh, peculiar in the universal context. I have to ask, Doctor Sigurdsson, you know. How should we understand the notion of a, a Norse pantheon, you know, a, a sort of family and and or hierarchy of gods, you know, a classification of gods, you know, a, a god of war, a god of royalty, a god of the farmer, um, you, you know, is, 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 you know, one instantly thinks of sort of, of Greek mythology. And I think that um, in large part, perhaps due to Snorri's Edda, uh, we've been tempted to think along those lines as it relates to the Norse gods and goddesses. But what are your thoughts on that? And how should we view, uh, you know, Norse deities? Uh, I, uh, <clears throat> I know that this, there's a tendency among scholars to, uh, as I said in the beginning, not to believe our source. To not to believe Snorri. So, and I am postulating that we don't have an option not to believe our source. I find the source that is Snorri much more believable than um, uh, 19th and 20th century scholars speculating about what might have been uh, 200 years earlier, using Snorri still as a source and then reconstructing something from, from Snorri into some other system that we think is more likely. I just think um, that is um, not really a method that uh, that uh, works for anything. We have to focus on what Snorri is telling us and uh, try to see the system there. And there is clearly a system. And then there is a pantheon in the sense that um, uh, all the main gods, they are the, the, the actors, the planets. Those are the moving, moving gods. So Tyr, uh, Odin, uh, and Thor and uh, Freya and uh, perhaps Loki as well if he is behind um, uh, the Saturn name so uh, these are the ones that are uh, generating all the stories and making things happen because they are the ones who are moving around and they are moving between uh, mythological locations uh, in the stories as they are in the uh, as they are in the sky as on earth as in heaven and um, uh, but the uh, the hierarchy then uh, i think it may also be a part of our way of thinking and of course not his way of thinking he is thinking in terms of royalty and there is uh, in the 13th century it has become acceptable that the king is a ruling and um, so there must be one god over the over the uh, other chieftains so to speak so I don't think we need to look uh, necessarily just to Rome and Greece to that. that this is becoming an established um, idea in his time that you need um, hierarchy in the world of gods as you need in the world of world of man. And, um, and uh, we cannot really um, 
have some egalitarian ideology thinking that in Viking times people didn't uh, think along these terms and people just chose their own god and all the gods were equals and I think there is part of um, so uh, socialistic idealism in, in that sort of reconstruction and also because our source main source that is Snorri is of course a male upper class uh, uh, educated uh, chieftain so he gives his version and of course for a man who is a poet and a politician uh, a, a god like Odin who is a, a god of poets he must uh, be very high up in the hierarchy if you would talk to uh, someone who uh, had less interest in, in the verbal art and uh, less respect for poetry then and would be more violent or physical in his actions, that person would probably think of uh, Thor as um, higher up in the same hierarchy. So we, uh, we shouldn't think of this notion of a pantheon as absolute. There is no central text. There is no central authority that was deciding anything. But there was still a, a relatively small elite class uh, that was held together by the uh, poets and the uh, chieftains that um, that were uh, they were working for and with, and these people held their knowledge of the mythology together with reference to the sky. So there is a certain stability always there. the The sky is like a manuscript for these stories. The planets they call forth stories when they move from one location to another and they are not always making the same movements. They are not always meeting the same planets or, or uh, gods. So you can always tell different stories and new stories. And um, But it, uh, you can never get around the fact that, that these, uh, these are the main characters in your stories. And uh, whether you place uh, Odin on top or uh, and, or uh, or some other deity is uh, is uh, another matter, and I think that that may just reflect uh, Snorri's personal interest. But uh, trying to uh, or start thinking about uh, Snorri as just um, uh, reconstructing or uh, constructing something with a model of the uh, classical. Mythology, I think that is um, a mistake in approaching, approaching it. He is giving his um, traditional interpretation of the um, uh, mythological world that has come down to him. So he is not making anything up in that sense, but of course he is adapting it and he is uh, telling it in a new environment and with the education that he has and uh, possibly inspired by the uh, knowledge that... Uh, of course, it was available to him that there were mythological texts from classical um, Rome and Greece that um, uh, could serve as a justification for, well, if this has been written down uh, by these people, why, why don't we write it down as well? But that was not an idea that was common in Europe at the time. No other culture has um, their own mythology uh, written down in Europe in a similar fashion, because all cultures in pre-Christian time had their mythologies, had their mythological terminology and notions about the world expressed with, with myths. But nowhere else in um, 
in Europe did an individual who uh, was um, so knew how to uh, use books as a medium come up with the idea of writing these myths down in a systematic fashion. So the usual pattern is when cultures are Christianized that you have an anthropologist or a folklorist or a missionary coming in and asking people questions about getting individual myths and individual stories and poems and so on. But never do we get uh, people explaining the system behind them because this is uh, a knowledge that is exclusive for the upper class and you don't share that with anyone and certainly not an outsider who comes asking questions and writing down notes or even with a recorder. So the, the, uh, the system that Snorri lays out for us is really he's um, revealing the uh, secret of the inner elite circle of poets. And we have no reason to believe that he thought this would be publicized and uh, taught in every school to every school child because this is the exclusive knowledge that makes you the uh, poet that you are. And shouldn't be told to to all and everyone. Well, Dr. Sigurdsson, as we wrap up our conversation today, just sort of one kind of question that I, I have is, um, and I know it's a, sort of the answer is inherently ambiguous, but, you know, do, do we know anything about historical worship of the Norse gods featured in, in Snorri's Edda? Um, you know, do we know anything about um, whether some gods would have been more appealing to certain groups of people. For example, a king might, you know, uh, venerate Odin more than he would Thor, something like that. Well, we have um, all kinds of speculation, of course, going on here. And th this is uh, indirect and evidence. As I said, the likes of Snorri, who uh, wants to be a politician and mischievous politician for that matter, and also wants to be a poet and a storyteller, it's natural that he places Odin high up. And, uh, but uh, we don't have like many Odin's names in the place names in Iceland. We have um, Thor in place names and we have Freyr or Freya in place names. It's hard to tell whether it's uh, Freyr or Freya. And of course, these uh, siblings are very identical and probably one can replace the other easily. And uh, so that, that would be the evidence we have that the, the names of individuals, individual gods are associated with some places. And we have reasons to think that um, gods were uh, venerated somehow uh, in some certain uh, outdoors locations, maybe uh, well-grown places, waterfalls, for example, uh, there is... Um, speculation that the waterfalls may have been significant. Also trees, some trees, of course, with a uh, mythological reference to the world tree that is uh, in the sky above. And then you would select a tree down here on earth that you would think of in these um, celestial terms. So, and then there is the notion of sacrifices. Uh, how were uh, burials conducted? Is that uh, uh, correct that uh, slaves or uh, or uh, or some um, people uh, around the um, the highborn who was being uh, buried were sacrificed? As we have reasons to perhaps 
uh, believe or think from um, from the um, famous account from the uh, river banks uh, in um, Russia. But we don't know if these were uh, Norsemen or some other group that was being described there. So we we can, uh, of course, speculate and uh, probably this was much more violent than we would find agreeable in um, in our time. And uh, people would go uh, at, at length in sort of... Um, uh, yeah, sort of physical violence and physical pain in order to gain some spiritual experience, fasting and uh, and staying awake and uh, using perhaps some chemicals that they could squeeze out of uh, out of uh, nature. But uh, still, you can do all kinds of things to um, get into some spiritual mood that would link you with uh, the divine other world. So. Um, uh, we can only sort of speculate when when it comes to that level, and that's why I say that before we start doing that, we should um, concentrate on the sources that we have that have survived down to the very Christian era of the 13th century. And the, the reason why they survive is that they still have meaning for the people. And the meaning they have is, of course, the practical meaning for the uh, poets, and also the, it's just the place names for a very prominent part of the world, which is the sky above us, which has more or less disappeared from our vision in uh, modern times because of electric lighting and uh, air pollution. So we don't see the sky as the clear, uh, uh, a clear cinemascope uh, action uh, packed area that uh, you can imagine if you apply the mythological terminology to it and you can observe it again from a hot tub in uh, in Reykholt. And that is perhaps the uh, our modern link to understanding this is that people who have summer houses in the countryside and they now have built hot tubs there, this is their moment of experiencing the uh, clear sky turn off the lights and they can uh, stay outside because Iceland is not a nice place to stay outside in winter. It's, uh, it's uh, cold and, uh, and windy and the only way to uh, be outside is to have a hot tub to get into and then you can start observing that this is exactly what Snorri did, of course, to, to perhaps practice the... Um, the sky observation that uh, we uh, we read about in his Edda. Indeed, indeed. Well, Dr. Sigurdsson, this has been fascinating. It was a pleasure having you back on the podcast today. I know I've certainly learned a lot. Um, I'll put a link to your works in the description of this episode. Indeed, your academia.edu profile as well. But are there any particular works of yours that we can link to that you'd like to point listeners to? Yeah, there are uh, at least two articles there on the academia. Uh, one very recent that came out um, in uh, Jens Peter Schütz's uh, uh, Pestschrift last spring, where I outlined this argument and also uh, how Gilvaginning breathes life into the sky and another one, uh, something about the sky in uh, mythological terms. So there are two main articles there that I think would be useful to explain this further with references. Excellent, excellent.
Well, uh, listeners, thank you for tuning in to the History of Vikings. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your uh, platform of choice. Join us right here again for another episode.